Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the secret to cement. Singer, musician, writer, artistic habitant. Kevin Barnes is with us. Welcome. to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film. With you every week, Murmur Radio, M-U-R, M-U-R Radio. Download us, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, oh yeah, social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram, email me, Murmur Radio at gmail, M-U-R, M-U-R, radio at gmail.com. I like spelling things. It makes me feel like my education paid off. <laughs> Those early burglary years. Oh, yeah, big announcements. The Modern School of Film is going on the road this summer. We will be in Sao Paulo, one of my favorite cities, in June to do a uh, workshop, what we call the Day for Night Masterclass. It's a combination of craft classes for filmmakers, entrepreneurs, actors, writers, producers, and we're going to talk some film and TV content creation, but also do a series of guest discussions with some amazing folks based in Sao Paulo and Rio. The workshop will be in Sao Paulo. Then in July, we will be in uh, Vienna. I haven't been to Vienna in a, in a while, and I'm really excited to get back. July 16th through the 27th of July in Vienna, day for night Vienna. So this is a concept, a masterclass concept, where I combine teaching classes with guest lectures in Vienna. Same thing, same reach in terms of talking with producers, actors, filmmakers, entrepreneurs, thinkers, writers about craft. And at night, we will do some chats with some guests in Vienna, some amazing guests. This is better summed up and better stated and how to apply. Go to modernschooloffilm.com. That's the website, modernschooloffilm.com. All the information on Sao Paulo in June, Vienna in July, Day for Night Masterclass Workshops. It's a cool new concept I'm launching, and it's going to be rad. 
teaching classes, talking to guests. Yeah, check it out. And if you're going to be in either of those countries during the, either of those times, come to see us. Come to see me. Enroll first, apply first, come to see me later. <laughs> Thank me later. <laughs> Modernschooloffilm.com. Welcome to Murmur. Today on the show, Kevin Barnes of, of Montreal. Of Montreal is the group, let's spell it correctly, of is lowercase of, oh, sorry, lowercase o, of Montreal. So it's Kevin Barnes of, of Montreal, but Kevin also has done some solo projects and some other projects. Of Montreal is the band, it's sort of a collective, an artistic collective that rotates its members. Kevin is always the constant fixed entity of Montreal, but other members have come and gone, uh, contributed in the studio and on the road, and it's it's sort of a rotating circus of music and really fascinating live performance and other forms of external presentation of the music. He's a guest we could talk to about so many artful topics, whether it's music alone, writing alone, art alone, but today we're going to combine it, and performance alone, but today we're going to combine it all and bundle it into today's topic, identity. We all can kind of conceive of a definition of identity. I think we have been misguided <laughs> beyond our youth, uh, dating back to the Greeks, know thyself, know who you are. I think knowing who you are is too grand a goal. I actually think it's a misleading goal. Identity. What is identity? Identity has always been conceived, in my experience, to me by teachers or by imagery or by philosophers or by thinkers or by friends. Anyone who had something to say would often say that identity is a goal. Identity is who we are, our identity. I missed the mark on identity when I was young and learning about the word and learning about the aspiration of the word, I thought identity meant I had to figure out one thing about myself, the one thing I am. And then the search for the one thing I am and the pain and the disconnect from not being the one thing I thought I wanted to be and the person who I was, I realized I'm all these things. <laughs> I am all these things professionally, personally. Identity is too shallow a term. For who I am. But I want to stick to the shallow realities of identity today because I think too often we get caught up in using the word identity as some sort of victory. I identify with this. I identify as that. The side of the moon I'd like to explore with Kevin today and with you is the side that tells us identity is a small moment of us, is a small molecule of us, is one thing at one moment. It is not the accumulation. It is not the sum of the parts. It's not even the parts. It is a part. It is Clark Kent, or is Superman his secret identity? The word identity and the concept of identity may lack usefulness if we determine that identity is a fixed, hard, thick idea. So let's take another angle. That identity is fluid. Identity is mercury. Identity is sand. Identity is not cement. It is not concrete. Identity is sand and water and gravel. How's that? <laughs> How's that for rewriting decades of the pretense to understanding and the aspiration to understand my identity or anyone's identity? that it may not have been worthwhile. I don't know if the Greeks thought know thyself was 
the prelude to identity, but I think oftentimes we stand on the word identity like we're hovering over a, a nail with a hammer. Identity politics, gender identity, I identify as this, I identify as that. I can identify as multiple things, can't I? And I think the, summation, the sum total of all those identities are me. When I think of the kids I grew up with, they wouldn't recognize this me mentally, visually. Okay, I have a little less hair, so yes, visually, but mentally, emotionally, they wouldn't recognize most of me. To wit, people I know now wouldn't recognize me then, and it's not simply because of age, it's simply because my curiosities have changed. You can argue that the same curiosities I had as a child, I have now. However, there's so much more to those curiosities. They're fleshed out. Some of the curiosities have been reconciled. Does that mean I've succeeded or failed at landing on an identity for myself. Identity to me fits in more snugly with something that we grow to realize later in life, that the only thing constant is change. Is the goal to really stop and identify, or is the goal to accumulate multiple identities in service to the one person we are, the one person we become? When I think of today's guest, this is a man artistically who is played with identity on a very external level. If you've ever seen any of his shows, there's a sort of prog rock ethos. There's sort of a character-based ethos, costume changes, play acting, theatrics, characterization, character forming. The band itself is, by definition, is is a lava lamp of identity. Players rotate in and out. Yes, Kevin is the son to the universe of, of, of Montreal, but It's really a great emblem for identity. Identity is an amoeba. Identity is not a single-celled organism. And moreover, it's idyllic to lose one's identity, to lose the fixed position, to lose the expectation we have of one another, whether it's, oh, you're a businessman, you don't write poetry. So let's reject. In order to explore the term, we're going to reject it. It's not going to be easy. It's a very counterintuitive approach to understanding something is to reject it. Usually we don't want to talk about the things we reject. But identity can also be a freedom. And it's funny when I think of artists and how they ply the tools of identity, Kevin, uh, people like Bowie, who we seem to talk about every week. Um, But when we think of artists who change, change, who adopt persona for each maybe album or each phase of their life, it's often a tool to allow the artist to be somebody or something they're not, or to be a character within a character. Bowie was not born David Bowie, and his characters were characters on top of a pre-existing character. So who is the real David Bowie? None of those people. We don't know who he was. We don't know who Kevin Barnes is. Kevin Barnes is in a band. He's done solo stuff. He has channeled everyone from Sylvia Plath to uh, James Brown uh, to an alter ego named Georgie Fruit, who he describes as a uh, black man who has been through multiple sex changes. He's been to prison a couple of times in the 70s. When he was in a band called Arousal, a funk rock band, sort of like the Ohio Players. So who is Kevin Barnes? Identity is not the way to figure it out. <laughs> because if we really want to map someone through what they say their identity is, we're, we're not going to know that person. So let's be generous and say you are a collection of your identities. And today, you know, it's funny, I'm going to spring this on you now, but Kevin Barnes is a big 
sports fan. <laughs> he's a big Indians fan, and he's a big Cleveland Browns fan. And who would have thunk it? You, you know, that's the point. Don't thunk it. This is simply part of who he is. Every thorn has a rose. And if you, you see the way he approaches his music, he is someone who relies on identity. He relies on character. I think identity is molecule thin, one molecule. It's not the accumulation of molecules. Identity is each single molecule. Kevin has some fascinating artistic molecules. <laughs> there are all these kind of fun surrogates in his work. You know, surrogates, identities, all of these identity tools, those of an artistic and those of a less artistic, more earthbound uh, agenda exist. So let me offer this before we bring in Kevin. If someone says they identify as something or with something, we're going to hear that now as a beginning of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. And the person using that term or that context or that expression or that understanding is going to see it as one page in a book. Identity is a page. It's paper thin. It's molecule thin. Identity is fluid. Identity is sand. Identity is not cement. It is not concrete. Before we bring in Kevin, I was thinking of identity cinematic identity. And to me, that's Hitchcock. It's the wrong man syndrome. You've got the wrong man, you know, maybe borrowed from Kafka. Maybe that's the literary version of identity, but Hitch used it really well. The MacGuffin, (laughs) the thing we're following in the movie isn't even that important. (laughs) The thing we're asking, the thing the movie is asking us to identify is meaningless. (laughs) There you go. It's not a lie. It's not an insult. But the intoxication of following it too deeply, too romantically, too religiously, too devoutly, you do so at your own peril. Today on Murmur, Kevin Barnes, on identity, off identity, double identity, no, double indemnity. Sorry, Mr. Wilder. (laughs) Now this. Not what I expected, a little taller, a little more polished than the others. Oh, I'm so glad you're pleased, Mr. Townsend. But I'm afraid, just as obvious. And what the devil is all this about? Why was I brought here? Games? Must we? Not that I mind a slight case of abduction now and then, but I have tickets for the theater this evening, to a show I was looking forward to. And I get, well, kind of unreasonable about things like that. With such expert play acting, you make this very room a theater. Ah, Leonard, have you met our distinguished guest? He's a well-tailored one, isn't he? My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. Elusiveness, however misguided... Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Did you call me Kaplan? I know you're a man of many names, but I'm perfectly willing to accept your current choice. Current choice? My name is Thornhill. Roger Thornhill. There's never been anything else. Of course. So obviously, your friends picked up the wrong package when they bundled me out here in the car. Do sit down, Mr. Kaplan. I told you, I'm not Kaplan, whoever he is. Excuse me. Yes? The guests are here, dear. Look after them. I'll be with you in a few minutes. Now, shall we go down to business? I'm all for that. Quite simply, I'd like you to tell me how much you know of our arrangements. And, of course, how you've come by this information. Naturally, I don't expect to get this for nothing. Of course not. Don't misunderstand me. I don't really expect you to fall in with this suggestion. But the least I can do is afford you the opportunity of surviving the evening. What the devil is that supposed to mean? Why don't you surprise me, Mr. Kaplan, and say yes? 
I've already told you. We know where you're headed for. And I know where I'm headed. I'm headed for the Winter Garden Theater in New York, and I think I'd better get going. Townsend, you're making a serious mistake. This is not going to lead to a very happy conclusion, Mr. Kaplan. I'm not Kaplan. I do wish you'd reconsider. We also know your contact in Pittsburgh since Jason committed suicide. What contact? I've never even been in Pittsburgh. On June the 16th, you checked into the Sherwin Hotel in Pittsburgh as Mr. George Kaplan of Berkeley, California. A week later, you registered at the Benjamin Franklin Hotel in Philadelphia as Mr. George Kaplan of Pittsburgh. On August the 11th, you stayed at the Statler in Boston. August the 29th, George Kaplan of Boston registered at the Whittier in Detroit. At present, you're registered in room 796 at the Plaza Hotel in New York as Mr. George Kaplan of Detroit. Really? In two days, you're due at the Ambassador East in Chicago. Oh. And then at the Sheraton Johnson Hotel in Rapid City, South Dakota. Not me. So you see, there's very little sense in maintaining this fiction that you're deceiving us any more than we're deceiving you, Mr. Kaplan. I don't suppose it would do any good to show you a wallet full of identification cards, driver's license, things like that. They provide you with such good ones. It's getting late. I have guests. Do you intend to cooperate with us? I'd like a simple yes or no. A simple no? For the simple reason I simply don't know what you're talking about. Give Mr. Kaplan a drink, Leonard. A pleasant journey, sir. La mia mente ha preso il volo Un pensiero uno solo Io cammino mentre dorme la città I suoi occhi nella notte Banali bianchi nella notte Una voce che mi parla chi sarà Today, before we welcome in our guest, I have a little baggage to unload. The friends I grew up with in high school would be shocked to know what I do now, because to them, I was a jock. I actually was a kind of smart jock in high school. 
What's interesting is the people who know me now would find the old me a paradox because they would be shocked to know I was a jock in high school and could have played basketball in college. This is one of many fascinating paradoxes I've learned to live with, we learned to live with, for the sake of identity. I have a similar outing I want to do for today's guest. He is a big Cleveland Browns fan. Come on, Kevin, really? The Cleveland Browns? <laughs> On the bright side of things, he's also a Cleveland Indians fan. And that's brighter recently. It hasn't been too bright, but Terry Francona has made it a little brighter. Today's guest also never said in a million years he would ever have a career in music. Well, he was right and wrong. It's only been 20 years, but he's had an amazing career in music and art and performance. Maybe one day in hip-hop and poetry. Who knows? Please welcome today to talk about things both inside and outside, vis-a-vis -vis identity, Mr. Kevin Barnes. Kevin, hey man, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, tell me, okay, let's start Cleveland Browns and then get it out of the way. Are you still a Cleveland Browns fan? I mean, are you hanging in there? What, give me give me the give me the skinny on on you as a Cleveland fan. Uh yeah, I guess, you know, growing up, my dad was a huge sports fan and that was kind of a bonding thing we had together, so We'd watch all the Browns games together and all the Cavs and Indians games together growing up outside of Cleveland and went to see games and stuff like that. And as I got older, I don't even know why. It's not something that I'm trying to cultivate inside of myself. You know, it's just like an organic thing that I, I think it's kind of like an escape from the harsh realities of life, you know, sports yeah. are. And yeah. so for whatever reason, it appeals to me. But yeah, I am still very much, I still follow everything that's going on with the Browns. Or not going on. And, uh, well, yeah. And that's the one thing about Browns fans is for some reason we're eternally optimistic about the, uh, the future of this the team. And even if they stink year after year after year, we don't give up on them. That's why they call it Believe Land. Exactly. you, you got to believe. And that leads us a little bit into this idea of identity. I was thinking about when you were in high school, you said, in high school, I felt very feminine. And I thought that's an interesting quote. It, it juxtaposed to this idea, because we look at sports fans, not that today's about sports fans, but sports fans are these sort of alpha humans, right? And we wouldn't conceive of someone who feels differently, you know, externally or internally as being a sports fan. Was that, was that interesting to you in high school or was that alienating? Did you feel there were parts of you that you couldn't express because of other parts of your identity. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you were talking about earlier in the introduction that it's weird how we compartmentalize subgroups of people and say like, oh, you're into this kind of thing, so you have to also be the embodiment of all these other things. Right. You know, it's like, for some reason, it would seem weird for a jock to be into RuPaul's Drag Race. You know, like, <laughs> yes. it shouldn't be because these are all just human things. They're just, you know, these are all just different ways that human beings can communicate and explore different aspects of the human condition. And, there's, you know, it's really unhealthy for it to be set up where, like, you can only do certain things if you're a certain kind of person or, you know, if you identify as a certain kind of person. And so I think that's why I, it doesn't really bother me. Like, I'm super into dressing and drag, and I had a lot of fun doing that, and I have a lot of friends that are in different kinds of, you know, social groups. I'm also every day looking at the ESPN website, you know, watching Pasolini films and reading whatever, you know, I don't feel like I need to limit myself in any way. But when I was in high school, to get back to your question, yeah, I think that maybe for whatever reason, society sort of wants to sort of push us into these different categories and make us feel like we have to be these one-dimensional characters. You sort of buy into it maybe when you're young and you don't understand that 
you don't have to limit yourself in any way. You know, it's interesting, this concept of destabilization. You know, when we talk about a government being decentralized or destabilized, you know, we shit our pants a little bit. Human beings are sort of a survivalist species, so we like order and expectation. If we lost gravity in this room right now, it sounds fun, but you might shit your britches a little bit. And, and I was thinking that vis-a-vis where you're talking about that the eclecticism of identity, which turns me on, may turn you on, scares the tar out of other people. Um, I guess if you're clinging to something, but just like everything in life, you have to, for it, you know, for it to really take hold, you have to let it go. You know, if it is a real essential component of your identity, then it's not going to leave you. You know, it's like I had this realization kind of recently that it's impossible to lose your mind. You might lose a mind, but your mind will always be there and it will change and it could be different from what it was or your concept of yourself could change, but you'll never, no one loses their mind. It's just something that can't be lost while you're still alive, you know, because... What's amazing is when you were saying that, I heard birds chirping and that's not (laughs) a sound effect. That was actually literally birds chirping. There it is again. That's that's amazing. I I think you got to, you got to bring, throw a leash on that bird and bring him or her with you. Uh, that's a, that was amazing <laughs> as you were saying that. You know, I, whenever whenever I look at small concepts, we're speaking with Kevin Barnes, whenever I think of small concepts like identity, I try to go back to square and look at the root of the word. I-D-E-M is a late 16th century idem, meaning the same. There was a common expression, idem et idem, meaning same, same. And as I dug a little deeper, it was looking at this aspiration towards stability, the concept of power and stability. Do you think identity fights fluidity? And you can ask Mr. Birdie if you want to, but you know, you, I mean, I'm fighting to the question here of, is fluidity the opposite of identity or is it the, the ground zero of identity? Because we think of musicians, let's say, who keep reinventing themselves. I mean, we can go through them, Bowie and Madonna, there's Legion. Do you think fluidity is the height of identity or the antithesis of identity? Um, well, I think the delusions about identity being fixed and that people will often have a few kind of personality traits that they feel like sort of embodiment of who they are. And then they sort of cling to those traits and other people sort of identify them as a person that has these traits. And they never really allow themselves to open up and explore other possibilities or even just kind of hear the inner voice that's telling them, no, you're actually capable of these things as well. And so often I think people have a very limited self-concept of what they are and then I think, like, you know, for art, it's essential for people to not have a fixed identity and not be uh, only capable of one or two little tricks because you'll never grow as an artist. Your work will just start feeling extremely predictable. You know, it's, it's funny that we say, like, oh, yeah, we have an example of, like, five or six musicians that have, like, you know, reinvented themselves throughout the course of their career, and then everyone else just basically does the same thing over and over and over again. So we kind of have this perception of, yeah, the people that reinvent themselves are the really exceptional, special ones, and everyone else is sort of like a normal artist. Right, but right, right, right. You know, it's like it yeah. totally seems counter to what you should be doing as an artist or how you should be approaching creating work. You know, you should never think about, oh, does this sound like me? Is this, is this like my kind of thing? Well, it's tricky, as you know uh, full well. There are two other machines in play. One, one machine is. We're gonna have some sheep eating the ivy in our yard. So did you want them to eat up into your um, studio or do you want us to stop the property line? 
Oh, yeah, sure. That'd be fine. What okay. they do, I'll let you know, but they're going to put a, you might not even be in town. Okay. They bring in a mess to electrify, and they're going to have kimchi, and they're going to eat all of the ivy and muriels out of our yard, and it'll, they'll be there for two days. Well, cool. But the, the, the fence is electrified, and I know you usually have your dog out on a, um, on a leaf. Oh, yeah. So, but I didn't want them to get to your yard without asking. Oh, yeah, no, that's cool with me. Okay. Yeah. Right, good. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> There's a whole kitchen sink drama going on. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I think you staged this, knowing your background, but that's just, <laughs> you, you, you know, you're you're kind of a latter-day Spike Jones in that way. But, you know, that's just uh, me. You know, I was speaking with Kevin Barnes and his many accomplices. You know, I was thinking <laughs> about, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was thinking about, you know, there, there, are some, there are some microscopes, you know, that are constant. I would imagine, you know, your fans expect the unexpected. Most artists can't jump out of that face paint fans will revolt if you change too much right and maybe you're not in that that same bracket but can you conceive of how artists would be terrified or labels or agents or pr machines you know what do you mean you're going to do the dark side of the moon wayne coin you know whatever it is it's yeah. prob- wayne's probably an exception but if you do understand the fear of breaking out of expectation at least well i guess i realized pretty early on that there's no such thing as this like kick fans. People are fans of one thing, but they not, might not be fans of other things. In no way are you obligated to please anyone ever, because you just can't win at that game. You know, like, even if you try to imitate something that someone else likes, they might not like it five years later. Right. It might just have been a moment in time that they liked it. And also, who the hell is a fan? Like, someone could be just someone who just likes it. It's not like they're liking it to be nice. You know, they just genuinely like it. And they might genuinely dislike something else, and that doesn't change the relationship at all. They're just a random person that liked the thing that you made, or they're a random person that disliked the thing you made, but it's totally irrelevant what they think or what they want, you know, because you're on your own personal mission to explore your creativity and to express whatever you need to express to humanity during your time on Earth. I was thinking about uh, some of your early, you know, musical influences that you've quoted. And, and again, identity is internal and external. And that's what I want to get to kind of in this next beat with you. Reading you talking about Motley Crue and Rat as some of your favorite bands growing up. And uh, when I hear those bands, I think of hair. I think of, you know, fingerless gloves. I do think of the outside parts of I. Well, I do think of the outside parts of identity. What, what appealed to you about those bands? I mean, I'm guessing the sound, but what about the external, uh, you know, coterie of those bands? Was that a turn on as well? Uh, probably so, yeah. <clears throat> probably on, on a more subconscious level. I like the fact that they were definitely doing some gender bending, you know, as far as growing their hair out really long and teasing it up and wearing sort of flamboyant clothes. I mean, they still have a pretty strong masculinity in what they do and that they are, you know, really, really horny young men who are just trying to, you know, spill beer on young women with T-shirts, you know. The story <laughs> like... of some poor white dudes trying to get laid <laughs> with <laughs> backstage. No, I'm teasing. I, I know. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I got kind it. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, especially when, when I was like 15, you know, yeah. that definitely appealed to me. That's just sort of rebelliousness and just party atmosphere of it seems very exciting. I can still listen to some of that stuff. Like the first Motley Crue record, I think is still pretty solid. I think Girls, uh, Girls, Girls is pretty solid. And I'm not just saying that 
because it's one of my life mantras. I, I just th- I think a lot of the the cadences and the the meter of those songs is really pretty solid, actually. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I was at this uh, vintage store yesterday, and they're playing Paradise City, and that song was so huge drum fill, the huge guitar solo, yeah, the whole thing like so over the top and absurd. Like by the end of the song. Like they don't even want to end it; they just want to keep just having these like climaxes, like one after the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Mr. Brownstone. There's no foreplay in any of those notes. I mean, and, and in that record, and it and it was kind of the cool moment at the cool time. And I remember listening to it in high school and and saying, I I want to, I think I want to have sex, and I don't even know if I know what sex is. You know, I mean, so I do think. Well, yeah. I was I was thinking about does a sound have an identity or is an identity more of a human appellation, more of a human idea? Do sounds have identities? It's hard to say what comes first, the sound or the identity, like historical context can create a sort of mental image around a sound that yeah, yeah. Like especially like saxophone for example like we hear like kind of like scronky saxophone and we're immediately brought back to like late 70s early 80s and a certain kind of hairstyle certain kind of fashion certain kind of production for music and same thing goes you know with like certain keyboard pads that, that we hear so like oh that's so 80s or you know, certain kind of bass sounds could sound like remind us of like the '90s and Red Hot Chili Peppers and things like that. Well, so, I've heard you say the six, think, the '60s sounded feminine to you. Talk about Ray Davies, Brian Wilson, guys you admire, John Lennon. You know, and you, you use the word gentle, but feminine is feminine an identity, or is that you know we, we can go towards the G word of gender? Do sounds have gender as well? Um, I guess you know some sounds might feel more maternal. I kind of associate a loving gentleness with sort of maternal vibe. Do you think of like cock rock, more macho, masculine sort of thing? I was also thinking a little bit about your history and more of your influences. Prog rock. There's certain terms that are the mixture of sound, intellect, feeling, gender, and craftsmanship. Because we forget about how fascinating and how beautiful prog rock is. I don't know if people even know what the prog stands for. And it's not prog, former Czechoslovakia. Um <laughs> That would be funny, actually, prog rock. Anyway, um, how would you define prog rock? Um, I guess I think prog rock, I think of a more virtuosic form of production where the level of musicianship is a lot higher. It's not like a garage rock sort of thing or a punk rock thing where it's very um, raw. Maybe the bad side of it is that it can can become kind of sterile and too intellectual, but usually doesn't follow any sort of template that makes any sense. There's a lot of time signature changes and a lot of key changes. It's a very freeform style. It has a, for want of a better term, a look to it in the sense of my primal mind goes to Peter Gabriel and Genesis. <laughs> you, you know, and it's funny, some people are listening and thinking, aren't those two different ideas, Peter Gabriel and Genesis? The, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which was the last Peter Gabriel Genesis album. But that stage show was insane. And Prague meaning progressive, but not just orally progressive, right? Wasn't it? Wasn't the whole presentation of musical identity progressive? I mean, the way prog rockers dressed and the way they constructed concept records. Do you think progressive was also a kind of photograph of a scene? It wasn't just a bunch of dudes in jeans and t-shirts. You know that there was a lot of thought put into the visual side of it and, and including some theatricality to it and also, you know, getting back to kind of the concept of, of the interview, like a lot of role playing, uh, a lot of character shifting within the production. So I think that appealed to me 
costume changes and sort of persona changes from one song to the next definitely appealed to me. Speaking with Kevin Barnes, just thinking a little bit about Bowie. I, you know, it's funny. I think about him more and more that he's gone, and and that sounds obvious, but. I guess I think of him differently now and thinking about you and him in a sense on a spectrum. A lot of people put him in the prog rock and and beyond the presentation, Bowie was always playing, it seems like, with identity. I mean, his name isn't David Bowie, it's David Jones. And he also went through uh, fluid identity spaces from Space Oddity, 1969, Ziggy Stardust, uh, Thin White Duke, 1975. Lad Insane was the red and blue bolt of lightning. These changes, you know, to quote the song, these changes, I always sometimes think for Bowie, it was like a symbol of pain. During Thin White Duke, 1975, he was having a lot of trouble with substance. He apparently kept urine in his refrigerator at the time. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but he, you know, he was eating, this was from his biographer. His bi- biographer says when he made Thin White Duke, he was eating only red and green peppers washed down with milk. Now, again, this may be true or false, but it seems like sometimes artists identity shifting or playing with identity modes is a reaction rather than an action. What has it been for you? Well, I guess I have a very different sort of relationship to persona because I feel like there's a very strong division between my artistic creative side and and my just sort of day-to-day person that I am or that I feel that I am. For some reason, maybe it's because of my like sort of blue-collar upbringing that I sort of have strange relationships with being an artist, like I don't really, I've never really thought of myself as an artist, I've always thought of myself as just like a regular person, you know, just like... How dare you? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I always kind of wish that I could be more pompous about it. My brother's the same way, like my brother makes, he's more focused on his art than anybody I know, but he wouldn't necessarily identify as an artist, more of just like, like a working man or something. So I guess, yeah, I just have that sort of working man attitude about about it all. Do you ask yourself who you are? Do you think about that a lot? Um, yeah, I can't say that I've ever asked myself that or that I really care because I'm always open to changing. I've always been a fairly moody person, and so I never really feel fixed on, like, this is the kind of person I am, aside from just being a sort of mercurial person, kind of who I am, and I have come to accept that. We do put pressure on people to know who you are, I mean, or who who they are. I mean, that 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 Greek idea, know thyself. Does that set itself up for failure? Do you think it's fair to ask a young kid or a human being, who are you? Uh, we do it all the time. We do it in high school. You know, we do it on social media. You know, we use words like "I'm adulting." You know, it feels like we're not okay with the moment and the accumulation. We need to stop and assess, but. That's the thing. We want to know things, don't we? I, I mean, I want to know about you. That's why I reached out. Does that concept itself bore you? Does that is that an interesting concept to reveal who you are, uh, or does that kind of feel like antithetical to what you enjoy and what propels you through life? Um, well, it's just like if you want to figure out who someone is in that moment in time, it doesn't mean that you'll know who they are whatever, how many years that they live, all you'll ever know is who they are in that moment. And like, if you, you know, talking to me today, I'm the sort of combination of all the things that I've thought about and, and experienced up to this point in my life. And I feel like in a lot of ways, we're all basically the same person soaking things up and to the limit or the ability that we have to perceive things 
to absorb things, to understand things, to put them into a framework that makes any sense to us. That, those are the elements that sort of create an identity. So we're all basically the same thing. We move to a couple final beats here with Kevin Barnes. Someone asked you about the ideal afterlife, and you said an all-encompassing absent-mindedness, no ego, no identity, no personality. And it sounded like a Hedvig and the Angry Inch lyric coming on. But I also thought that was interesting. The absence of identity is ideal. Why? Why is that? What, what is freeing about that? Is it simply the lack of baggage that w- would be on you or the lack of expectation? Well, there's no pressure. And <laughs> yes. I think that that's one thing that gets me down the most in life is, yeah, like being depended upon, being relied upon, having things expected of me and having people getting upset by me changing or being a certain way or acting a certain way. The burden of ego is pretty intense, and that's where I think a lot of pain comes from. The ideal situation for me would be to be a part of something, the infinity of everything. It's sort of, I was reading this uh, this Zen philosopher comparing life to a drop of water that's falling down a waterfall. While it's falling down a waterfall, and if you feel with anxiety and forget that at one point it was a part of the body of water that was leading to the waterfall, and it has no understanding or concept that when it lands into the water again, it once again uh, reconnects with that body. We're sort of just dropping down the waterfall, and we're filled with anxiety because we don't remember that we we're once a part of that's lovely and the the dog in the background doesn't agree obviously maybe he's a catholic dog Uh, and i also feel like we're getting a tour of athens today we've now met the neighbor's dog it's 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 you're beautifully philosophical uh speaking with kevin barnes you know one thing you said after your separation that you had to reestablish your identity uh, living with a partner for 11 years, why did you want it to reestablish an identity? What what was the gain for you? What what had you lost and what were you looking to find and have you found it? Um, I think that I'm slowly starting to find it again, but I think that the real issue was, for me at least, when I was with my partner and wife of all those years, that she was sort of an anchor for me and everything that I experienced was sort of seen through the filter of us, you know, the sort of couple experience where, yeah, everything I did affected her. And so I wasn't just, you know, an individual traveling through space by myself. Um, You know, I had a partner. And I sort of felt on some level frustrated with that, but I didn't realize how also how important it was to me and how important it was to the balance. And, And it's requiring a lot of growth that I wasn't necessarily ready to take on. So it just had a lot of consequences. When I think of you not knowing you, although I feel like I know the woman who takes care of your sheets now, I feel like I know some of the animals in the neighborhood. <laughs> so I'm getting there. We're, we're almost on a second date, Kev. Um, and it's funny, you know, you, you've, you've played this cosmic trick on the world with a band called Of Montreal, of lowercase o, Of Montreal. What's your reaction to... Um, I'm speaking today to Kevin Barnes of of Montreal, meaning it's it, for some people it's not enough to say I'm speaking with Kevin Barnes. Adding of of Montreal is this the Faustian bargain of being an artist? Most of your w- working day, working timeline, working triptych are part of a collective. Now, of Montreal is a unique collective, obviously, but do you feel burdened by that? Where you're 
part of another organism? Or is that simply another part of your identity? Um, well, when it does become burdensome, I, I'm able to sort of shake things up. You know, that's the one good thing about being the one consistent in the project is that if I feel like things are moving in an unhealthy direction, people are sort of becoming too negative within the group, then I can always just kind of push them out and <laughs> replace them with somebody that works better. You know, I'm You're like Don Corleone of the, uh, of, the, of the art rock world. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on a nicer level, maybe more like James Brown. You know, like if, right. if you're sort of like the main man or the main woman or whatever, and then you, you're able to feel empowered. I mean, like I don't, I try not to abuse that power and I definitely don't try to like create a negative situation for people. I always want them to know that, yeah, you know, you're free to come and go as you want. I'm free to like work with other people if I want to, you know, so it's sort of like an open relationship, like a musical open relationship. If they're bummed out, then they shouldn't be doing it. You know, it's like no one's forced to do anything that they don't want to do. Uh, one last question than a quiz. It's not a quiz, it's a game, actually. It's a fun game, I think. Um, I was thinking about identity and writing. This wasn't something interesting that jumped out at me as I was thinking about you. When your record, uh, Lousy with Sylvia and Breyer, drawing on the explicit or implicit or emotional uh, ideas and energies maybe of Sylvia Plath, you had said something really interesting around that time. You said, with all your records, there's some bit of writer or filmmaker or someone that needs to symbolize the spirit of the thing that I am chasing. What, what does the seance serve? You know, what, what is the seance of Sylvia or the seance of Georgie Fruits or the seance of any nom de plume or metaphor or image or film what does that serve D does it give you an allowance why bring in these god and goddesses surrogates into your process like that and especially with someone like sylvia because that's a dark space creating a tunnel like that why why do you need to do that why can't you just go there um well, i think it helps to create a framework for me to work with and i kind of consider myself sort of collage artist and that I put a lot of, I use a lot of other people as inspiration for like a jumping off point for a lot of things. So often I'll think like, okay, I really like, I'm really into this Tom Tom Club song and I'm really into this Danzig song and I'm really into, you know, this Osmi Tante song or whatever. And wouldn't it be cool if there was a song that sort of sounded like those three artists together? The reference point is the thing that helps me understand what I'm trying to do or what is happening musically mm, and mm. and often yeah as I'm working I'll be like this sounds too much like this thing so maybe I'll use a bit of this other seasoning uh, Frank Zappa seasoning or this Chopin seasoning John Coltrane seasoning or whatever it might be and just like putting this funky collage together from all of my favorite things hopefully a little bit of my own personal style gets in there as well accidentally i was thinking of something like uh you know modernist painting and even even some like duchamp new descending a staircase where it's so much of the opposite of what it is that it is meaning you know you're talking about this collage of other artists that are you can make the argument our identity molecules and when put together identity molecules become identity free <laughs> you know it's like it's like taking different sodas and creating a non-soda out of all of them that's my 
yeah. Long Island example, you know, because that's my upbringing. Uh, but, you know, so it's interesting because you're giving me some hard data here. Uh, Os Mutantes and, you know, Frank Zappa, another prog rocker, probably the most well-known American prog rocker. And those are hard, that's hard dramaturgy, man. That's hard Wikipedia. And a lot of artists don't use that. And I love that about your work. And I love that about your thought process. You, you get off on that. And what I love is when you puree those, It's the absence. Now, I I conclude with a little game. Have you ever, and it ties both into parts of your background that you were saying, parts of my background and this idea of identity. Have you ever played the blue collar game? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. It's very simple and it's not very PC, even the name of it, the blue collar game. Uh, But there it is. It's, um, you have to choose, if you had to choose one blue collar profession to to move into, what would be that blue-collar career that you would explore? Um, well, would sports journalism count as blue-collar profession? <laughs> uh, you have to explain. No, I'm, I'm not convinced. How would that count for, towards blue-collar? Well, I was thinking of, like, the beat writer, you know, the sort of, like, alcoholic, chain-smoking <laughs> guy that's, like, a bachelor, just a weird dude that, you know, hates the team that he's forced to write about but he's also totally obsessed with the team and i think there's something about the removal of um actual power in that you know that you're just documenting something that you have no power over interesting it's kind of interesting to me and uh yeah it's kind of like i have this sort of like 1950s spencer tracy idea of like what that person would look like or how that person would be i think maybe so would it be a baseball beat writer and i only say that because it's a, it's a it's an attrition game, you know, 162 games, yeah. eating really shitty craft service before the games, <laughs> s- smelly press boxes, you know, like seeing the same people over and over. I mean, is that the drudgery? You know, it's funny about baseball. Baseball is like a novel. You know, football is a different thing, but baseball is your friend every day. Does that appeal to you? Because that's the uber grind. So is it the uber grind that appeals to you? I think so. I mean, there's something like, strangely comforting about baseball too i think maybe it is because there's so many games it goes on for so such a long part of the year and even if you you include like spring training into that it's like almost the whole year so it's just like some other kind of mind-numbing thing to focus on that also can have a lot of excitement if the team is doing well yeah and if you're like emotionally connected to it there's almost like existing without existing yeah it's like a fish tank you know it's it's the fish tank of sports i yeah it's soothing to me and i think you should do this i i think you should write a column on baseball you would be amazing i would love or just write me a personal essay about like why (laughs) you like you know terry francona i would love to read your thoughts on baseball or football i'd I'd be into it yeah i'd be into it for sure and why aren't you a braves fan by the way Shouldn't you be a Braves fan? It's funny. I've tried <laughs> to become a Braves fan many times, but for some reason, I it's the weird thing with me in sports is like I can watch any Indians game, and I can pretty much not watch. I can't watch any other team play. Like any other baseball game would be so boring to me, but watching the Indians game are totally captivating, spellbinding. I'm just like totally into it. But why? I why try to watch any other game? Is it the clone? Of your youth, as you said, is it the clone of watching it with your dad, or why? Why is it? Is it the uniform? Is it the Jake? What is it? <laughs> uh, I, I somehow connect with them on a personal level that I don't connect with any other team. It's the same thing with all the sports. I mean, yeah. like, maybe basketball is a little bit different because it's so exciting, but yeah, I, don't, I couldn't really watch a full 
football game if it wasn't the Browns or if it wasn't like some really exciting playoff game or something. Can we? Can you and I go to a baseball game at the Jake one day? I would love that. That would be. Do you go to games or is that is it just too cold outside? Um, I've gone. Up, I actually went with my dad a couple years ago. We went to see a game when I was up visiting in Cleveland, and it was amazing. I, they won, and it was a really great game. It's kind of the perfect day. Well, I didn't mean to be glib with some a ritual like that because I know seeing sports with adults or with people we love can be really beautiful and bonding. So I didn't mean to sound glib, but I will leave that invitation open. I would be honored to go to a, any baseball game, but uh, at the Jake notwithstanding. I'd be into it. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time. I really appreciate it. And I think you've successfully uh, put water on my fire to figure out identity because I think the lack of the thing is usually the thing itself. So thank you, man, for clearing that up. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I thought it was a really great conversation. Take care, Kevin. Be well, and we'll catch up with you again sometime. Be well. Okay, bye. 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 Grazie ma stasera io vorrei morire Perché sai negli occhi miei c'è un angelo Un angelo che ormai non vola più Che ormai non vola più Che ormai non vola più You know, call me crazy, but I don't think Kevin wants to go to a baseball game with me. <laughs> he just wasn't getting that feeling from his response. I mean, I'll let him off the hook this time, but, you know, Kev, I mean, come on. Me and you at a baseball game, sunflower seeds? Th- that's good times. <laughs> you know, I do feel like we went through his neighborhood today, don't you? I mean, that's the kind of first-person guest access we give you here. Nowhere else will you hear Kevin Barnes's neighbor's dog, uh, the Uber driver in the background. You won't hear the nice lady who delivers his sheets. It's all happening here. That's why you tune in every week, remember, radio. At least that's why I tune in. I mean, it keeps... It keeps us on our toes, does it not? (laughs) What a business. I want to thank Kevin Barnes for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur. Murmurradio.com, at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. The Modern School of Film is going to be on the road this summer. In June, we will be in Sao Paulo, June 18th through the 25th, day for night, masterclass. Then we go to Vienna. Vienna waits for you and for me. July 16th through the 27th day for night masterclass, teaching craft, filmmaker, actor, entrepreneur, writer, producer craft, guest workshops, guest lectures. See you there.